This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Many of us have developed a bias about the juvenile detention system from these are violent kids and they need to be punished to indifference and everywhere in between. I can assure you, once you read Jeff Hobbs' compassionate, thorough new book, Children of the State, Stories of Survival and Hope in the Juvenile Detention System, there will be a new understanding, meeting young people of resilience and hope, who despite handicaps of loss and violence and trauma, exhibit warmth and caring and intelligence. I wanted to take a magic wand to each one and give them a whole new beginning. Jeff's book gives us an inkling of what that might look like. Jeff, congratulations on an extraordinary and humane book on a complicated and vitally important issue, and welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you so much. That's just so kind and thoughtful of you. It means a lot, and I'm grateful. Oh, well, you know, you've you've done some important work here, and the approach that you use with meeting the subjects, I think, really changes how we think about them to to meet them as young men and women who are um, teaching or involved in all at all in the system. But before we meet some of the kids and educators, Let's ground our conversation in understanding the variety of ways that the juvenile detention system works. Because I realized in reading your book, some are under the Department of Correction, some are under the Education Department, some are under a division of family and children's services. So explain what the system looks like right now. Yeah, it is a vast and varied system. And the important thing to understand is that it's locally governed and not just state by state, but uh, county by county and city by city. So while the system as a whole definitely follows trends over time, and we, we can talk about what those trends have been going back generations, there's been a real, almost like a rhythmic oscillation between very severe punishment and uh, and more humane community-based approaches. But um, yeah, it's a confusing system, especially for teenage people in the sense that uh, depending on where you get picked up, where you make a bad decision, where, where you're just in the wrong place in the wrong time and have some bad luck, uh, you're facing very different and, and very convoluted rules. And and that's, you know, one of the many reasons when kids uh, hear that door locked behind them, they, they can be in a real state of trauma and shock and confusion. And it's hard. So the construct of the book is that you take three very different systems and then use that to cover a couple of different kids. But describe each of the systems that you went starting with Ferris. Sure. Yeah, this book is constructed, we call them like nonfiction novellas. So uh, Mm -hmm. each section is about a different system in in a different place. And so Ferris School, you mentioned, is a detention center, um, a state care residency program in Wilmington, Delaware, which actually is near where I grew up, which is how I connected to the facility. I used to actually play them in football and JV football very badly. Um, (laughs) uh, The important thing about Ferris is that it's it's where kids go after they've uh, gone through the system, stood before a judge, and been adjudicated, which is sort of the juvenile justice word for sentenced. And so when they end up at Ferris School, 
they know they've been sentenced to three months or six months or usually a year at the longest. Whereby the uh, school in San Francisco that I followed called Woodside, which is in the Twin Peaks neighborhood of San Francisco, that operates more like a like a county jail in the sense that kids who are arrested, but for whatever reason have not are delayed in seeing a judge, but are deemed unfit to be at large or don't have people to look after them, which is important. And we should talk about the adults and all this. You know, it's where they go between being detained and actually seeing a judge and and hearing their sentence. So there's a higher turnover and it's much more stressful and and, uh, kids are really breaking down because they don't know what what the next week or months are going to look like. So just to clarify that, Ferris, they are, and I think it's important to use this word, sentenced to a fixed amount of time Mm -hmm. in Ferris, whereas Woodside, they're in a state of limbo and they don't know how long that limbo is going to be. It could be three days. It could be a year and a half. Limbo is exactly the right word. and, And that's really what it looks and feels like. And the last system is Exalt, which is in New York. So when we think about New York and juvenile detention, we think about the devastating stories when teenagers were being put in Rikers, which is its own nightmare. And New York has invented a series of systems that are alternatives and almost borough related. And Exalt is an experiment of of sorts. It's had a good track record. Describe what they're doing. So, yeah. And it's important also to realize that um, kids were being sent to Rikers up till pretty pretty recently, 2017. So the system in New York is, is very new. And a lot of the data isn't really cumulative yet, but uh, I think they're doing a good job to make up for some of the horrors that kids have gone through there. And so Exalt um, has been around a long time, I mean, over 15 years, and it's technically a diversion program. And diversion is typically kids, before they get to juvenile hall, during one of the steps in the court system, someone will say, like, this kid, instead of locking him up, there's probation, there's community service programs. But Exalt serves kids who have already been through the entire system and are coming out of juvenile hall. And it's basically a very intensive, very demanding kind of life and professional skills class whereby these kids, while going to their regular high school or alternative high school, they show up in this office in a pretty fancy building in downtown Manhattan with a view of the Statue of Liberty every day at 4 p.m. And uh, in these classes of, you know, 15, 16 kids, they go through this pretty heavy curriculum, everything from job training, job interviews, writing, computer literacy, and then it culminates in in a professional internship. And overall, it's a four-month cycle that uh, it's really, it's hard in describing it, it's hard to do justice how special the program is and how special the teachers are and and how special the kids are. And and we're going to come to that. What I want to go to now are some of the people that you introduce us to. And I think your ability to portray the internal experiences of the people we meet where we begin to understand their coping mechanisms or their lack of coping mechanisms, their loneliness, their anger, and their depression changes how we think about juvenile detention. And most importantly, I think you create intimate portraits of these kids and the challenges they have to make good decisions. I think it's easy for those of us who grew up basically on another planet from these kids to just say, like, Jesus, why the hell don't they, you know, and you could just fill in the blank of whatever that is without understanding all the sort of derailing aspects of their lives. So one young man that I was rooting for, and 
remain hopeful for is Josiah Wright. Am I pronouncing his first name yeah, correctly? That's, that's right. So this is a quote of his in the book that I think gives us a glimpse at how at a very vulnerable and determinative time they're picked. He wrote, he knew he was intrinsically better than his worst decisions, yet he felt as if he would always be defined by them. Even in this place where few had any idea where he'd come from or why. So, Jeff, describe for us the cost of this stigma of always being viewed as bad. Sure, and that that is the uh, predominant stigma in not just inside these facilities, but once the kids get outside, I would say. I mean, not being a psychologist, I would say that's really the biggest obstacle as far as these kids getting out and uh, and getting back into school and uh, kind of getting back on track. But, uh, you know, there's this word that is ubiquitous in schools, and the word is potential. I mean, it's used in schools as kind of a motivator and a driver. This is your potential. This is um, you know, this is everything you have ahead of you if, if you put your head down and put the effort into it. But at a certain point for for certain people, and I'm thinking of Rob Peace too, who, who I wrote mm-hmm. about in a prior book, you know, there's a point where that word potential, the charge shifts and becomes very negative um, and potential becomes, comes to embody what you haven't accomplished and probably won't accomplish. And uh, I don't mean to get too abstract or anything, but uh, I, from the, all the time I spent, you know, walking beside a lot of these kids, that that's where they ended up just in a, you know, even in the facilities, really surrounded by often counselors and teachers for whom it is a calling and who really, I think, contrary to popular perception, really are trying to help these kids, um, they end up in a state of real dejection. And uh, yeah, I, I think that's where the stigma lands. You know, Jeff, one of the things I realized with Josiah, so Josiah had the classic abandoned by his father, had a mother who didn't really have that much time to pay attention. He had step-siblings. And so he gets in trouble in the way a lot of these kids that you talk about get in trouble in a way that's one quick bad decision that if you were another person or a person with resources might be a life lesson learned and you move on. But in the case of these impoverished, mostly kids of color without resources, it's about them beginning having a record. So when you talk about seeing their potential, so Josiah, when he was a kid, was a really good student. He was recognized as a good student. And then like all teenagers, right, they become the peer pressure becomes something else, right? So Josiah goes into Ferris. He goes in with a what you described, which I loved, is creating armor to cover fragility. And he gets motivated in a surprising way, even in this environment, to graduate from high school within the year that he's going to be in Ferris. And you see this kind of flicker of feeling good that you are being singled out and have the potential to to make this happen. So I want to talk about that a little bit before we then talk about what's still going up against a kid. So what is it that makes that happen? Because I think you saw that a lot in this book. You see these unbelievable, caring, thoughtful, committed teachers and and counselors working with these kids. So describe what it is that they did that made that happen for Josiah. I mean, there's a lot I 
left out in the book of Josiah's story, uh, mainly because when you're writing about kids, I try to be just really sensitive and careful about what they're comfortable sure. putting forward. And I thought Josiah w- was really courageous in the extent that he did put himself forward. And I think it's important to add about him just as a person is that he's a pretty introverted guy. And uh, so not only did he go through a lot and witness a lot growing up, but it's hard to be an introverted teenager just anywhere and under any circumstance. So he was kind of dealing with that too, just being very in and out of jail, just being very observant and pretty sensitive to the behavior and the feelings of others. And so it was hard for him to be in this environment where it's a very posturing environment and uh, it kind of rewards, you know, certain personalities more than others. Now, at the same time, he did play sports, uh, football and lacrosse, and he acted in Shakespeare plays and, and did all this fun stuff too. But as far as where that turn happened for him, and uh, I, I wasn't in the room when the counselor, I kind of stayed away from the uh, direct counselor-student interactions because those mm-hmm. were precious moments. And I, I would uh, you know, kind of hang outside and hear about what was going on afterward, just as far as the writing process of this. But uh, uh, I remember Josiah walking out. It was uh, sort of the late fall. He'd been in for a couple months and he just learned that through his detainment, his incarceration, and through the fact that while incarcerated, he was had no choice but to go to English class and math class and the core classes every day. He was actually had gotten back on track to graduate from high school and was actually, if you sort of summate his entire transcript, you mentioned that he was a pretty bright, like young kid in middle school that uh, he might have a very rare opportunity to consider college. And I remember kind of sitting with him at the end of the day that he learned this and he was kind of smirking and shaking his head and his eyes going wide and narrow. And uh, he just seemed kind of confounded that he even had this decision to make because the decision was twofold. He had to decide whether he wanted to put in some effort, some extra textbooks, some extra tests during his time at Ferris. And he had to decide whether he was willing to absorb the flack that You know, a lot of the kids around him were definitely going to throw at him. I mean, oftentimes lightly, but sometimes more seriously. Yeah, it was a special moment to uh, be be a small part of, um, and he did decide to to follow follow through on those opportunities. You know, as I was reading the book, and who was the young man that was also on this track? His name began with a C. Yeah, uh, Cassio. Cassio. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you brought him up. I was just about to uh, mention. Yeah. So describe him for a second. Yeah. So Cassio, I mean, I mentioned this environment of posturing, and it's pretty loud, and and, uh, it's punctuated with lots of arguing. And I mean, if you go to a juvenile hall and spend an hour there, it, it looks and sounds pretty much like you would expect. It's when you hang around that uh, you start to see the deeper connections and you see these relationships like Cassio and Josiah formed where, you know, it's just one kid pulling another along while the other kid pushes and just the, this powerful force of two people aiming for something bigger. And so Cassio was really, he'had been there a while and uh, it was interesting because he was from North Philadelphia and gang affiliated. And he was there for some pretty serious, not violence, but gun possession. So he, he was a pretty hard kid, but in class, he was this teacher's pet 
mm-hmm. uh, very soft. He had like a big soft face and the first kid to speak and spoke eloquently. And uh, he was so earnest about it that uh, other kids didn't even really give him a hard time. Like that was just who he was. Yeah, he was just kind of the class nerd. Yeah, of course he was going to do better. And uh, so Cassio ended up somewhat taking Josiah under his wing and saying, yeah, of course you should do this. Like, you know, the tests are hard, but why wouldn't you do this? And yeah, it, it was beautiful. So, Jeff, as I said, as I was rooting for Josiah, and I still am. Uh, me too. Uh, that I, you know, the thing that you do in the book is you could be describing any kid, that we're reminded of the universality of who these teenagers are. You could use some of these descriptions and it could be someone that you grew up with or my son grew up with. So you begin to understand if we could sort of separate out the fact that they made a bad decision, maybe even a violent one, and that they were kids, we could think about them differently. And a lot of these teachers do. But what you become reminded of, so Josiah, against pretty good odds, does graduate from high school. And his teacher and counselors are heroic and intrepid at finding community colleges or colleges that these kids can get accepted to, they can get scholarships, and Josiah gets that. He gets an opportunity to go to college in Rochester. But then you realize the second set of odds that these kids have. And describe how you would consider those odds. So he's by himself. He's in Rochester, New York. He's at a school where kids are coming from all over, have very different life experiences. And what are the obstacles then for a kid like Josiah? Yeah, it it was a really complicated and hard. And the school was actually a bit removed from Rochester. So it was even more rural and isolated and felt, I think, to him even farther from home in in Wilmington, Delaware. But I mean, I I think this is all really layered. And uh, the thing that's hard to square is that when Josiah was incarcerated for something that it's hard to believe they really deserved to spend a year in jail right? for for what he did. And I don't want to be too detailed about it. It's hard to believe he deserved a year of his teenage life spent in jail. But uh, yeah, as you said, he got out. And uh, But what happens is they're incarcerated but they're also surrounded by these counselors and uh, teachers and even Mm -hmm. guards who, uh, you know, what we think of as guards, the juvenile equivalent, there's much more of a counseling element to it. And, and the guards are with them a lot more often because they're there at night. So again, it's all these relationships form and kids like Josiah can hit what they call a reset point. And Josiah did, and they got him to, to this college, but then he gets to the college and he's not surrounded anymore. He's very alone. And I mean, I I think that's probably in the many dozens of stories I I crossed paths with. It's that loneliness that occurs. So even when you get freed from jail and and that obviously feels good, but uh, you also lose those connections. And I think that is unexpectedly hard. And then in Josiah's very specific case, you add in the fact that he was starting in this uh, central New York school in the middle of January. So it was freezing cold and it was during the COVID epidemic. So the school was only half full and there were measures. And so he was going to be on the lacrosse team, but he wasn't really getting to commune with his teammates. And he, he was lonely and he was homesick. 
And all these, you know, all these counselors were just constantly reaching out to him, trying to get him on the phone, trying to get him on email. But when he was that far away, it was easy for him to not answer the phone and Mm. not reply to an email and and just not deal with uh, how, how hard and lonely he was. Yeah. You have a line in the book, or it's maybe it's a quote from someone, but I have quotes around it, so it could mean it's from you or somebody else. But there was a line that you had in the book, you know, as you think about how hard it is for these kids to sustain resilience. And the line that you had is, whatever resilience that children inherently possessed seemed to vanish the moment a deadbolt fastened loudly behind them. And it seems like that sensation is buried deep in their souls, even when they're not behind a deadbolt. I'm so glad you uh, found that line because uh, I actually, I spent a lot of time with that sentence because there's two layers to it. This word resilience, I already mentioned potential as being this very ubiquitous word in schools used as a often as a motivator and resilience is very similar you hang out in schools and and you hear that word left and right but i think that's a hard word for it was a hard word for josiah to wrap his head around because the way it's used in schools it starts to feel like something you either have or you don't not necessarily something you can build and and work on and sustain. And I remember like I was talking to the football coach. The first day I actually visited to spend a whole day at Ferris, they had a football game that day. They played. Yeah, I love that piece. I love that game that you reported on. Yeah, that game was the first day I, I was at Ferris. And I asked the coach who'd been doing it for 20 years. I mean, probably when I played them, and uh, I just asked him what what the hardest part of his job coaching was and he said that exact word resilience he said these kids just don't you know if something goes wrong in a game and things are always going wrong in a football game they they don't shake it off uh, they don't well he didn't speak in absolutes he just said it's hard for them to to bounce back and i mean sports being a i guess a metaphor you know once josiah later on in much more high stakes situations, whether to stay in college or not, once he started kind of slipping and feeling that loneliness. And I mean, I I was talking to him pretty often. He would mostly answer the phone during those months. And at that point, I knew him well enough where I I didn't feel like I was crossing a like a journalistic boundary when Mm I, you know, just it'll get warmer in a month. Like it'll, you know, you'll meet more kids College is hard for everybody. I mean, kids get homesick. But Jeff, you know, even as you're saying that, I know this doesn't really sound like a parallel, but, you know, David Brooks wrote that piece recently about his friend Pete dying and who ended up committing suicide and what he learned about what he could have done and should have done. And that when you're talking to a depressed person, You don't cheer them up by saying, well, you have a great wife and a great kids and a beautiful home and a good job because the facts don't really matter. And I, I felt like as I was watching these kids using language like, you know, cheery language that we might use is a weak offense to the defense in their brain that they're not worthy that they can't make it, that they're bad, that they're fuck-ups, you know, that it just won't happen. You just can, you know, as you describe Josiah, which I think you do such a thoughtful job of, you can almost feel like you're seeing his brain, like, trying hard to do the right thing. And the counter, you know, the counterweight is hard. Yeah, and... um I think the parallel you used is is really powerful, and uh, I mean I'm I'm glad he he wasn't having those sorts of thoughts. But uh, you know all all the counselors and the people who had invested an awful lot of t- 
time and belief in him when he was in jail and, you know, got him the textbooks and spent the hours and, and the focus. And, uh, and so him going to college was, you know, it, it was their collective dream too. You know, it was, there was a moment when he got his high school diploma and he was still in jail and they dressed him up in the gown and yeah, and he, uh, you know, he's not a kid who emoted very much. If, if you could, I mean, he laughed a lot, but uh, if you could get an earnest smile out of him, that felt like a big deal, you know? Yeah. The school sector in this jail is sort of like an elbow of a hallway around a library with four classrooms. And he was kind of walking this L in his gown and he was saying like, I'm a businessman, look at me and holding his, his paper. And so Mm -hmm. that moment was just locked in with everybody. And, uh, you know, and if that was the end of the story, it would have been such a happy end, but um, it was hard for everybody to, to sort of buy remote without being able to do anything again, like you mentioned, offer, these platitudes that aren't very effectual. It was hard to see that. So two things before we go on to a conversation about the system in general. One is, I did think about, there was one kid, I don't remember his name, who was leaving the system and was going to be going back to his public high school. And the day before he was about to get released, he said, it might have been in Woodside, he said, could I stay here to finish high school? Mm -hmm. And it reminded you of the kind of the dichotomy of not wanting to be confined and understanding that being confined might be a contributing factor to you being successful. Yeah, it's so complicated. And uh, I'm sorry to zigzag around, but I, I go back to that line you read about resilience and and what the sound of that deadbolt does. And so that line's about sort of the meanings of resilience, but it's also that psychology of locks. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, we talked about all the different kinds of facilities in the system, but a commonality across the entire landscape of the juvenile justice system that uh, I saw and I heard about from people with, you know, many more decades of experience than I gathered when the lock closes behind any kid, even if it closes just for an afternoon while some papers get sorted or or a parent gets off work, even if it's just a couple hours locked up, it is life-altering. Yeah. Um, You can't go back from having been locked up like that. Even the kids who shake it off so casually, it, it stays in them. And that's important. So, Jeff, I want to go to the system. So the detainments of youth have dropped precipitously over the last few decades. So question one is, what are the contributing factors? And regardless of that, what does the recidivism rate look like? Arrests are are down significantly, and uh, there's multiple reasons for that. Mainly, I mean, policy changes, and uh, there's a lot less locking kids up for drugs and certainly marijuana. So uh, that cuts down arrests a lot. So most of the kids you do encounter who are locked up, it's interesting. It either has to do, it's sort of two poles. Like the kids in lockup are either there for truly violent, really bad stuff, but violence, like fights at school, guns. Yeah. As the principal at Woodside said to me once, because San Francisco was trying to close down the whole juvenile hall system, and he's a progressive guy, but he said, I mean, if you're carrying a gun around, you've got to face consequences for that. You can't go to daycare for that. Yeah. 
it's, it's complicated, but, uh, so you have those poles of, of, of violence and, uh, danger. And then on the other end of that, you have a lot of kids locked up still for status offenses, like missing, you know, missing a probation meeting or being picked up for a moving violation while on probation, that sort of thing. But overall arrests are down. And then you asked about recidivism, which remains very, very high, I think, by some. And because of the piecemeal nature of the juvenile justice system, actually, the data is pretty piecemeal as well. It's hard to find truly aggregate data. So, so Jeff, that raises two easy questions. One is, if the imprisonment rate is down because the system has created policies that are more appropriately matched to the behavior, mm-hmm. has that led to better graduation rates among the population? Does that data exist? Because you would hope that means that there are some good outcomes. I mean, I live here in New Haven. The outcomes are not good. So is that generally true that that the that the decline in imprisoning them has or has not led to better outcomes for these kids in terms of graduation and other measures? Um, I'm so glad you asked about that exact form of measurement because the great frustration of counselors in the system that, uh, again, across the entire system is that they don't actually keep positive data. They don't keep data for who graduates high school, who goes on to college, who... That's absurd. Who uh, gets credentialed for for a tech job. They don't have that data. So, you know, these counselors and people making policy and people running the facilities, they're operating solely off the data we already mentioned, which is arrests, recidivism, who ends up in adult prison. So it's really, the perceptions are really lopsided and it's all very impenetrable because there's, there's no agency keeping track of Unless these kids go back into the system, which again, a lot of them end up doing, nobody's tracking the kids who don't, and nobody's in any kind of far-reaching way. When kids don't come back, nobody's looking at why they're not coming back and, and using that information. That's annoying. <laughs> yeah, no, you should have, I mean, the conversations when this came up with uh, with the counselors who are responsible for coordinating with high schools and transitioning these kids out and finding, you know, Votex schools that will accept them. You know, if you want to see grown people cry, uh, it's a good topic. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, the other thing that we touched on or you mentioned is there's this fine line of parsing between rehabilitation and retribution. Did you come away from this work feeling like there's, or defining for yourself under what narrow circumstances does retribution for a crime by a teenager seem appropriate versus rehabilitation? Yeah. I don't think there's a place for retribution, even for kids who have hurt people, even for kids who have killed people. And I met a lot. And uh, and again, I, I listened to those kids read their own poetry and perform skits. And I watched them get terrified watching horror movies. And, and you know, in those spaces, I watched them be kids. And uh, what the job is, is to untangle what they have done from what has been done to them. Mm-hmm. And that that interplay is obviously unique to each kid. But what I came away believing, and again, it's with a lot of input from people who this is their calling and this is what they do every day. If you remove the kids with the status offenses and the kids who you know, were defending themselves at school and you have these adults focusing 
just on those kids who need the rehabilitation the most, then the outcomes aren't guaranteed to be wonderful or anything. They're, it's still hard work, but uh, you do see better outcomes. And um, this just makes me think of one specific moment. And it was my first day actually at Woodside, which is again is the is the pretty hectic juvenile hall in San Francisco which is actually on the top of a, on a hilltop in the middle of the beautiful city overlooking, you know, a beautiful view from this horrible building. But this English teacher, uh, Megan, was walking me to the courthouse next door to get like a credential so I I could spend time there. Um, And she seemed really sad. And I, you know, I asked her if uh, she was all right. And she said she was not all right because a student who she'd spent a lot of time with who'd been in and out of juvie, but who she'd liked and who got out and was doing well. He'd just been killed the day before. And, you know, she was grieving for him. But at the same time, she was stealing herself for the fact that she knew whoever murdered that student would most likely be in her classroom. Mm-hmm later that week. And I I wrote this in the book. And that student, in fact, did end up in her class. And she ended up forming a really deep relationship with him. And and, I mean, he wasn't going anywhere. He he was going to graduate from juvenile hall into adult prison. I mean, he's still there, but uh, working with him, he just graduated from San Francisco State. And Megan struggles with that every day. But speaking of Megan, I want to close with these two stories. And I'm sorry we didn't get to Ian Alvaro, who was in Exalt. So Megan did a high-risk move with a high set of expectations, bringing a Zen instructor to the prison, to Woodside, and there was no way I thought they were going to get the outcome that they, I, I, it would it defied anything I could imagine. So in a quick version, Jeff, share with us what happened with the Zen master and the class at Woodside. In the great scheme of things, it, it is a pretty small moment. And yet somehow in it's magical, this experience I had and and knowing Megan and knowing these kids and the murderer I just talked about, Lawrence was in that classroom um, that day. So anyway, Megan is the English teacher there in San Francisco. And uh, some of these teachers are, are pretty skilled at kind of building a wall between themselves and all the all the trauma the kids carry and and that they carry in and out of the classroom. But uh, Megan just fully absorbs everything. And it is kind of miraculous that she can function. Uh, She's just really sensitive and and cares and is constantly just in it with these kids. So anyway, these, these kids, I guess they had watched a documentary that had to do with Buddhism. And they asked if she could give them some time to meditate because that might help them pass the time they have to spend in their in their rooms slash cells. And so Megan went and got this guy from a Zen temple in San Francisco named... Uh, Kobo or... Kodo, yeah. Kodo. So bald head, like hemp clothes, just, you know, like a mail order Zen guy. And uh, he came a couple days in a row. At the end of it, these boys entered a deep meditation, Zen meditation session, and I was there for it together. So in this room, absolute silence and... uh, 50 minutes. Yeah, so almost an hour. And then, so that was powerful in itself because Megan was sort of terrified. She just thought it would be a disaster. Yeah, right. <laughs> but then they they sort of came out of it. And then they had this discussion about what they saw. It was profound. I mean, I, I don't like to throw that word around because it's mm-hmm. another ubiquitous word, but it was truly because uh, 
what Megan was scared of is because what these kids have seen in their in their short lives, they've seen a lot of horrible things. And she knew when you're in that deep state that uh, you can experience a lot of those things. But uh, uh, yeah, they were just talking about what they saw in their on the other side. So Jeff, do you have any optimism about the system improving that programs like intensive programs like Exalt will begin to get replicated? Yeah, I, I do. I have a funny people ask me because the subtitle of the book is a uh, survival and hope in the juvenile mm-hmm. this system. And people ask me like, is there really hope or did you just put that word there because you have to yeah, yeah. use the word in the subtitle um, when you write a book or something? Because, uh, you know, again, we've talked a lot about it. A lot of these stories don't end well. But um, but they end better than they might have without the intervention that was done. Yeah. And in these insular spaces, hope, it doesn't necessarily mean a college graduation and and uh, a stable family and all of that stuff we associate with success stories. When you're in these spaces, hope can just mean a very subtle reorientation of the spirit, which, right. you know, whether they're meditating or, or trying to go to college or, or just being kind to each other, that's what hope is. And that's mostly what the book is about and, and all these small moments that uh, all these people were very generous to let me be there for. In the bigger picture, we've talked about trends, and I think the system is really trending in uh, in more humane directions and better facilities and more more diversions, more more agency. Another one of those words. The asterisk there is uh, I am not hopeful that in any in any larger way will people ever really be comfortable devoting real resources to kids who've made bad choices. Mm-hmm. And the very first thing we talked about was that stigma of being defined by your worst decisions, even if they were completely compulsive and ultimately not very harmful decisions like breaking a window or stealing something. They have a hard time believing people will. You know, you're saying people having a hard time uh, getting past that. What, what I, I want to close with this notion. One is, you know, we didn't talk about your process, but you spent a week, a month at each of the three institutions until the schools got shut down during the pandemic. But I believe you got to do that for seven or eight months. Yeah, it was like August till, uh, till March, yeah. Yeah, a a lot of it remotely. And as I said in the introduction, I think the compassion that you brought to the work, at least to me as a reader, resurrected each of these kids to appreciate that they are capable of the same good of anyone around us, that they're smart. You think of Josiah. He was quite knowing. He was very good at reading people and understanding what was going on, but their 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 losses, their abandonment, their trauma, their neglect is a lot. And I do hope people reading your book will appreciate that if we could give these kids the tools and the attention, the deep attention to overcome that, the core of these kids is as good as any kids walking around. And I really commend the way you told their stories because I hope they feel proud of themselves with the way you told their stories. And I'm going to close our conversation with actually your words. Above all, I found young people incarcerated, even for truly heinous acts to be redeemable. 
though that biblical word holds very different meanings to different people, such that I hesitate even to invoke it here on the last page. I don't use the word to suggest what we owe to the most marginalized children among us, or what they deserve from us, or how this whole knotted province of justice could be suddenly idealized. The intention and the hope is simply to offer further nuance to what it looks and feels like to be cast aside at one of the tenderest junctures of life and then try, try to re-enter a society that quite contrary to its long-held and oft-touted ideals is nothing if not grudging in its forgiveness. So I think that sums it up. And Jeff, I want to thank you. We've been talking to Jeff Hobbs, the author of Children of the State, Stories of Survival and Hope in the Juvenile Justice System. And, you know, I'm going to end with the hope that more people read your book and think about what the system can do and how worthy of saving these young kids are. Uh, Thank you. I'm, I'm so grateful to you for caring about this. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you. Just the Right Book is not just a podcast. JustTheRightBook.com is a highly personalized book subscription service. It's good for readers of all ages. We have decades and decades of bookselling experience at RJ Julia's, and they're the ones who are selecting these books. Here's what happens. We get tons and tons of letters. We've been around for over 10 years, and the letters always are a version of this. I can't believe you picked out this book. I would have never picked it out. And guess what? It was just the right book. So visit justtherightbook.com for details and begin your subscription today. Of course, we have a promo code for you. So if you go to justtherightbook.com, use the promo code podcast, and you will get 15% off on your subscription at justtherightbook.com. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Gino Cardone at Pleasant Podcast. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcast. I am Roxanne Cody. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any comments, observations, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at justtherightbook at rjjulia.com.